hey, welcome in to another episode of Stub Me Down. My name is JW, and as always, I'm here with my best friend Skinny, who may have noticed that today is December 23rd, also known as Festivus. I'm sure that you have some grievances that you would like to air, but we will skip those for today. Go ahead and give a Festivus hello to the people. Hey, what's up, everybody? Yeah, I don't have any grievances. I mean, all of 2020 was a fucking grievance. So I am uh, pretty happy. Christmas is right around the corner. You know, my kids, my wife is not so happy about Christmas, but I am. It's just a good time. I'm going to miss, like, seeing everybody together, and hopefully we'll get there soon. So, but yeah, happy Festivus to you. I guess we should say welcome back, right? There won't be any chance, Skinny, that you will get caught between the moon and New York City this year. The COVID shutdown, we're not going to get a fish MSG New Year's, but hopefully next year we'll be back on it. What can you do? I know you've been listening to a lot of last year's New Year's run as well, so there is a lot of good music at least to reflect on as we take a look back. I'm listening, starting to listen to last year's New Year's run, and I started off with 1228, 19 which was awesome because it starts off with evening song and then they they did that for the beacon jams with just page and trey the version that they did is so beautiful and then the version that they did on 1228 you can tell the crowd's just getting into it. it's the first night of new year's run they flood the words a little bit in the i think the second verse who cares that evening song let it off and then after that was um pretty good no man's and then you know the rest is history but I love Evening Song right now because the good things all get shoved in shadows. And that is like the whole 2020. But hopefully we're, we're going to start seeing, um, you know, that daylight now. And so I've been listening to that. And that Evening Song just sparks that memory for me. Uh, you know, I'm ready for some live music. I hope everybody gets a vaccine and I'll see you at the show. Just don't stand too close to me until I figure out that it works. That was your 100th show. That was my 100th show. I forgot about this. See, now, and then I'm like, oh, I'm listening to it, but I didn't make that connection. That's you're, you're a smart guy. Speaking of taking a look back on the last episode of Stub Me Down, we did a special episode. How about that jam? Skinny and I each stubbed each other down on one individual song that we had found meaningful. I took a look at a version of Runaway Jim from July 18th, 1999 at Camp Oswego. And Skinny took a look at a Mike song from his first show, June 28th, 2000, at the PNC Bank Arts Center in Homedale, New Jersey. Taking a look at those two songs in more of a micro fashion was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, I've been listening to that version from Oswego, that Runaway Jim is just really great. I've listened to it so many times now in my car because I'll start it at different parts of the jam. The favorite part for me to start it as the 12 minute mark with the super bad tease. From there, they just get, you know, so dark. I still listen to the mics. I felt like it was fun to take out the tweezer on that and pick out songs from the show instead of the whole show, which can, at times, you can ignore or forget about certain little things that were really good about a whole show. When you look at one song individually. That was definitely different for us. I thought it was interesting to just pick that one song and and dive into it. With that special episode in mind and what we have done with season one, the stub down is not always going to be a full show. 
The Stub Down for us is about taking a closer look at something musical from a different perspective. We both have pretty unique perspectives. We've come to be friends from very different places in our lives. It's important for us to talk a little bit about the genealogy of how we got to start a podcast with each other. In the first episode we ever did, we talked a little bit about why we came up with this idea and how we came up with this idea. But how did we become music fans? Why do we spend as much time and treasure as we do going to see Fish, going to see Grateful Dead related projects and all of the concerts that we have our lives are dominated by music. And that music genealogy is something that Christian and I wanted to take a, a little bit of time and explore, get on the record. This is really frigging cool for me, just in general. I, I'm, I, I can't believe that we're, that we're here doing this, Skinny, and I really appreciate your support in wanting to do this and the planning that we've put into it. So today's guest is a lifelong musician. He is a Navy veteran. He served in Vietnam. He had a lengthy career in banking and finance. He owned his own photography studio. He has authored a dozen books. All of that is very cool, but we are going to spend today's time talking about his lifelong love of music. So I am thrilled to introduce my dad, Bill, Papa Dubs. Thank you so much for joining us, Dad. It's awesome to have you here. Welcome to Stub Me Down. Well, it's great to be here, and I'm flattered and honored that uh, that you would want to have me, especially on uh, Festivus. We will not make you do any feats of strength. That's a good thing. And my aluminum uh, pole fell down this afternoon. <laughs> So great to have you. I don't know what to call you because I know that just how I was raised, you say Mr. White. Like, I don't know what to do when you're 50. I feel like a kid still. Can I just call you Bill? Christian, you can call me anything you want except late for dinner. That's great. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. I mean, I, I'm really pumped to have you here too. And I think it's one of those things that really gets to our philosophical discussion, which believe it or not, we do have about music that Josh and I are, are trying to kind of Find the meaning in, uh, of why is the live music experience so important? Why does music touch us in a certain way? I think having you here is going to shed a lot of light on who Josh is as a person when it comes to that, I'll say, musical theater or that venue. So thanks for being here. Pleasure. As we've talked about on previous episodes of Stub Me Down, I am not a musician. I played guitar for about five minutes when I was a kid. It was too hard. I couldn't figure it out. I didn't take to it quickly. And so I quit. My oldest brother, he did take up guitar and plays with my dad now. And that is that is something that I look back on and I'm like, man, I wish maybe I hadn't given up so easily on that. Obviously, something from my childhood and the exposure that I had to music stuck with me because here I am with a music podcast and having seen thousands of concerts almost for the last 20, 25 years of my life. So we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff today. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be a little bit of a window into where I have come from. Pop, are you ready to stub me and skinny down? You bet. Absolutely.
I just want to kind of, can you talk a little bit about your early music exposure, music career, kind of what got you started going all the way back to when you were a kid? Sure. Well, actually, I entered a contest on the back of a comic book when I was about 10. The prize was a genuine Gene Autry autographed guitar, three picks, celluloid picks, and three books of how to play the guitar. Well, I got the guitar and I got the picks, but the books never came. And I never found out what happened to them until about 15 years later when I saw my postman playing guitar on television. I later did get some books. I currently have a book called 17 Hot Licks for Gene Autry Guitar, and I'm all the way up to number three. (laughs) Good for you. Uh, I started, um, I think I might have been six or seven, possibly eight, with classical piano lessons, which focused on learning to read piano music and playing stuff that nobody, including me, wanted to listen to. And after several years of this, I said to my mother, I don't want to do this. If I get invited to a party and there's a piano there, I want somebody to say, hey, sit down and play the piano. I don't want to sit down and play Chopin or Mozart. She said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, I want to learn to play popular music. So she found a teacher for me who actually taught arranging, and I took from him for about one year, basically, until I left home. It was probably the best musical experience of my early career. He taught me theory. He taught me how to arrange. He said at the first lesson, go to the store. This was when you bought sheet music at a music store for a buck a pop for all the stuff you heard on the radio. And he said, go buy two or three pieces of music that you like, bring them in, and we'll figure out how to play them. So I did. He said, now, sight read the right hand, the melody, which I did because I had learned to sight read. And then he said, now, you see those little boxes with the grids on them? He said, those are guitar chords. You play those with your left hand, but on the piano. You know, it said D, C, E, A, whatever. So I did. And all of a sudden, I could play anything because I knew the chords. And I could read the right hand, which was the melody line. And it was life-changing in my music. So I decided then if I was going to use the guitar chords, that maybe I ought to have a guitar. So you said popular music, which I always think, as a kid, I did that too. I was into popular music before I started listening to the Grateful Dead and Fish and all these jam bands and, and kind of that jazz fusion stuff. But who was your influence when you were a kid? What songs were you going to get at that record store? I know kind of probably some of them just because of my mother is the same age. Um, She doesn't really tell me too much. Songs like that Dean Martin was singing and Perry Como and Bing Crosby and Patti Page and people like that. And this goes back to the to the 50s, guys. I mean, I had a special uh, holster made for my dinosaur so I could bring the guitar with me. <laughs> so I'd mentioned that maybe I ought to have a guitar to my mother. She got me a very high-end plastic baritone uke. Uh, has four strings on it, but it's tuned to the highest four strings on a guitar. Now I was using those grids to actually do something. That kind of 
got me into uh, playing a stringed instrument. I stopped taking formal lessons about that time because I went to sea. And I was working on a sailing ship in New England. This is at about 14. And one of our passengers was a jazz musician who came aboard with his guitar. And one evening he was sitting out playing the guitar and I was listening to him and I said, gee, that's that's really kind of neat. I said, I'd like to learn how to do that. And he said, have you got a guitar? I said, well, I have a baritone uke, it's plastic. He said, no, 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 no. He said, you got to have a guitar. So I said, well, I don't have one. He said, I'll sell you this. And he held up his guitar. I said, I don't have any money. I'm a deckhand on a sailing ship. He said, wait a minute. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 14. He said, give me $14 and it's yours. And I said, okay, well, while you're on board, will you help me learn how to play it? He said, of course. And that was the start of guitar. And that guitar was the biggest piece of crap that ever came down the line. It was a Gretsch F-hole jazz guitar with an arch top. And it was the neck was so bowed that the action was probably three-eighths of an inch high off the fretboard, which made it really hard to play. But I persisted and uh, graduated to uh, something a little bit more improved. Actually, it was a new guitar. I played uh, I played electric guitar in college uh, in a rock band. It was not what you guys are used to hearing. It was uh, two guitars, a bass, and drums. That was it. We played uh, stuff from the radio at fraternity parties and Chicago, early rock and roll, Johnny Cash, uh, some of the honky-tonk stuff. The pay was meager, but the booze was free. So, you know, it was a win-win. And then I went in the Navy. When I was in the Philippines, uh, some years later, I had a a 12-string guitar built for me in the Philippines that was sounded absolutely magnificent. And it it stayed with me uh, on two ships. When it came back to the United States, it didn't like the climate. So the back split because it was used to a 90 degree temperature and 140% humidity. And it came back into 30 degree temperatures and zero humidity. Uh, It was not happy. Uh, My wife, your mother, Josh, for our six month anniversary, gave me a classical Goya uh, nylon string guitar, which I took with me on my third tour and still have. Uh, In fact, I was playing it just the other day. It's 54 years old, but it still plays as good as it did the day it was new. Better, actually, because they do get mellow. And that was the start of my current collection, which interestingly, my most recent acquisition was a Gretsch guitar. So I've gone full circle back to my roots uh, at 14. We're going to get to your guitar collection because I've seen it and it's really cool. Of course you've seen it. It's in your room. (laughs) His guitars have taken my room. When I was in the Navy, one of the things that the military is famous for is its taste in music, which basically exists uh, surrounding country music. In a lot of the uh, spaces on ships that I was on, the ship's broadcast system was playing country music. And this goes back to the 60s when it was real country music, not the pop crap that you hear today on a country music station, which I won't listen to. But what captivated me about those songs is that 
every one of them told a story. And story songs are absolutely more fun to do because there's a logical progression. Yes, they are predictable, as is the music itself predictable. Nothing ever throws a a minor second into, that's a chord, by the way, into a country song. It just doesn't happen. It's a three or four chord progression. They're called cowboy chords for a reason. A, it's easy to play, so that's a default position right there. And B, the songs are, are great. They tell stories. Probably one of the greatest, I mean, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, these guys wrote amazing stuff. And I probably, if I had to pick one country artist from the old days that I play more than any others, it would be Chris Christopherson. And his songs are amazing. They're story songs. They're, in many cases, laments. In some cases, personal history. A song about a drunk getting locked up in jail called The Best of All Possible Worlds that he wrote was his personal history. Failure seems to be like this important theme in country music anyway, so... His first songbook, and back in the day, when an artist brought out, a, you guys know what an LP record is? Yeah, I, yeah, sure. I mean, I was born in 70, so I know a little bit about them. Yeah, I think they're called vinyl today. Yeah, vinyl today. But yeah, I remember LPs. I remember even the small 45s, the A and B side. Okay, well, when a songwriter uh, brought out a new record with 12 or 14 songs on it, as often as not, he put out a book with all the music in it. I wound up buying Chris Christopherson's first recording, first book, and I learned just about every song in it. They were all amazing. And I still play probably six or eight of them today. That that was where I was really going. And it was because of the storytelling aspect. And that, that was my exposure when I was in the Navy. Then, then the folk thing came along, the Kingston Trio and the Limelighters and Pete Seeger and all of these guys that were playing folk music. And that's what people wanted to hear if you went to a party. Oh, you know, play the new Kingston Trio song or play Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley or, well, okay, fine. You know, and that was fun. They were also relatively easy to play, but a little bit more complicated because of the harmonies than just the straight country cowboy chord music. One of the music selections that you shared with us in the lead up to this was a song called You and Me that you actually wrote. And that has a Mamas and Papas, Peter, Paul and Mary kind of feel to it. When did you write that? Is that something you were kind of modeling off of that genre at the time? Or how did you how did that song come about? Believe it or not, I wrote that on a train commuting to work on an hour-long train ride every day. And it took me one ride up, one ride back to write that. I could hear it in my head and wrote it down. And the words just fell in. Uh, at the time, I didn't know what to do with it. I played it and, you know, then I put it away. Uh, some years later, I was involved with a folk group called Bittersweet. Uh, it was decided that we would make an arrangement in four-part harmony of that song and and add it to our repertoire, which we did. But it's the, really the only song that I ever wrote start to finish music and lyrics. Lying on the sand, dreaming of you and me, listening to the stars. 
song because it has this like bucolic beachy feel i felt like when you tell the story how you're writing it on train going to work one of your lines in there is like to be so free i guess i feel like how you're you were feeling like maybe trapped in the train going to work every day instead of being able to enjoy that so i I really get that from the tune itself obviously like josh had mentioned where it does have this kind of mama and the papa's kind of feel to it and it's, it's a lot different than anything else that I listened to today, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. And who's the female singer on that? Yeah, my my wife. Oh, all right. Very nice. Shout out to Ann. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's professionally trained. Mama Dubs has got some pipes. And, and the other song from Bittersweet called Sportin' Life, which is a Brownie McGee, Sonny Terry song, none of us except the other guitar player and lead singer uh, knew the song. He introduced us to it. I listened to it and I said, that's got to be played. That's a bluesy thing. It's got to be played with a slide and I'll play slide. And we played it maybe three times that night and never changed. And picked up on the vocals instantly. Marty did the harmony. The slide fit right in. We did work out a melodic break to it, an instrumental break with harmonica and guitar. We call that a jam. <laughs> yeah, I heard that jam too. It was pretty good. Like, I mean, you could technically see where it falls into the song. I have jammed. I, I played with a jam group in Florida that was perfectly dreadful. <laughs> you know, you put eight or 10 or 12 people mostly playing guitars. We had one woman that played the mandolin. But, you know, everybody would come in and say, okay, well, I'm going to do a John Prine song or I'm going to do a Bob Dylan song. And we're in the key of G and play along. And then and everybody was floundering along. And there were people who were good and knew what they were doing and other people that had no clue. So we'd play it once and never play it again. I said to the guy that organized the group, I said, we ought to work up maybe half a dozen songs and practice them so that we could actually play them at a gathering somewhere. Oh, well, that's not what this is about. I quit before I got fired. Well, there went that. (laughs) There went that. It's funny, Pop, that you mentioned Bittersweet because going to see Bittersweet 
really kind of lines up with my memories of you playing the guitar. I mean, when I was a kid, obviously I would lie in bed at night and before you went to bed every night, you would play the guitar for a little while. You'd play the concertina, you'd practice, you'd work on something new. You'd sing a song. You'd sometimes just go in and mess around. Sometimes you'd be in there for a little bit longer. So basically every night of my childhood just about was listening to you play the guitar through the walls. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, I for me, it was always enjoyable and nice to sit there and listen to. And I remember the Bittersweet Band, and you guys used to play that festival on Sandy Hook. And, and so the songs that stand out from those days, definitely sport in life, especially with the slide guitar. I always thought that that was really cool. But also the City of New Orleans, which you always used to play. And that was one of the ones you would practice a lot at night. What was cool about that was we had a train whistle. I was going to say, mom had the old school wooden train whistle, and I absolutely loved you guys playing that. And And those are two songs that I think reflect a little bit about the music that I enjoy today. And they both have those kinds of feels and the way you perform them, the blues, the slide guitar, the soulful nature of those songs. That's something that Skinny and I have talked about a lot on this podcast is being at a soulful show and, and how that music makes you feel. And most of my good friends, they all that are gone. And it makes me worry. It makes me worry. No need to wonder. Sunday, I think I felt like every Sunday in the summer, we were at Holy Rosary. We would have to get there early and I would sit in the front row and I would listen to you practice and put the set list together for the show and watch as you played. And that's another standout memory. And it kind of aligns with the bittersweet memories because it all kind of had the same feel, albeit obviously the church music was a little bit more churchy and you weren't out, you know, being like a revival band 
with Bittersweet. I played for 10 years in a church band, which I always got amused at because it was in a Catholic church and I was not a Catholic. And they trusted me to run the folk choir, which people were amazed at. You know, this ragamuffin heathen with a 12-string guitar sitting in the front of the church playing folk music, Willie Nelson songs and things like that in church. And we played for probably 10 years in that church, at least once a month, sometimes twice. And we did something that no other church band that I've ever heard of did. We took requests. You know, we'd be warming up before the service and and people would come in and after they got to know us and what we could do. And they'd say, hey, are you going to play Will the Circle Be Unbroken today? And I'd say, no, but we certainly can. And we would just add it to the set list and play it, you know, at some point during the show. And and we handed out uh, music for people to sing along. And, you know, we did have one preacher who didn't like us a lot. And he came in one day when we were warming up and he came over and stood in front of us and listened for a few minutes. And he said, you guys belong up in Al Sharpton's church. (laughs) And that's funny because I was listening to Sport and Life today and I felt like there were a lot of religious influences. Did you ever play that song? Because it has that line, like change your ways and everybody gets tired of running around. I mean, that's, that fits right into Catholic church <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> we did not play that one in the church. No. <laughs> we do have a shared connection through music. And that is one of the things that brought this show together. And Skinny and I wanted to revisit the things that we've seen, the the trips that we've taken, the impactful music that just means so much to us in the moment, but then over time as well. And I listened to some of the songs that you have shared and Blue Eyes Crying and Wreck of the Old 97. And there's character to the way you play them that elicits that emotion that we kind of search out in music, at least that I do. And sometimes it's that elation, it's that peak that you reach when Trey's ripping a solo, or sometimes it's a more subtle piano solo in the background, or some lyrics that hit you in a certain way. But in all of that, there's a certain emotion and there's a certain underlying feeling that obviously you draw from playing music. Otherwise, why would you be doing it for 70 years? Twilight glow, I see her
have an attitude about my music that I play for me. I play what I want to play for the most part. I alternate days when I'm playing between acoustic blues and folk or country music. But I'm playing for me. If somebody wants to listen, super. If they like it, fantastic. If they don't like it, too bad. There's this connection that you have to it. And that is one of the things Skinny and I have talked about and tried to put a finger on it. You know, you put a finger on it and then it moves over here. And then you go over there to put a finger on it and it moves away from you again. What does music do for you? Why is it so important or so therapeutic? How do we develop that connection to it? And why do we stick with it for so long is something that we're kind of trying to circle around through this podcast. And that's really what stubbing each other down is all about. No question about it. And there's things that I have learned over the years that fit exactly with what you're saying. Music is an intuitive language of connection a way of listening closely to other human beings and journeying with them through time and space, if you want to. I like what you say about, I played for myself. As far as the experience thing, the conversation that we're, we're having is, that experience is, it, it's completely selfish, the music that we listen to. Music washes away from the soul, the dust of everyday life. And, you know, you can't be hung up on all kinds of crap going on and make music. It doesn't work. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think it's a stupid saying, but you got to have the rain to get the rainbow or one of those kitschy sayings that people say, or it's on a Hallmark card. But it is true that music is created kind of out of hardships and and uh, it's it's really good just to have that kind of selfish nature about it. I didn't really think about that. I mean, we do think about it, but I didn't really think about it after, until you just put it that way. So that's beautiful. I'm glad that I was able to provoke an original thought. None of the thoughts here on Stub Me Down are that original. <laughs> so lately, what, the last couple of years you've been in 18 strings. Do you want to talk about 18 strings a little bit? Sure. 18 strings derives from two guitars a six-string guitar, and a 12-string guitar. A guy who was the lead singer in Bittersweet and decent guitar player, and me, and we, we worked up a couple of sets and we played some saloon gigs and coffee shops and stuff. And that died with the COVID pandemic because his wife has a delicate constitution. We kind of bagged it. I've, I've been playing with a couple of other people since then, but nothing formal and just some pickup stuff. But I took a, I took a 15-year hiatus from music. I was writing books. Josh mentioned that in the setup. I did write, well, not a dozen, but 10 books. And that takes time, and it takes a lot of time out of the day. And so I took about a 15-year hiatus from playing guitar and got into it back into it about five years ago when my pen ran out of ink and decided that what I really wanted to do was not you know I still play country music and some folk music and but I want to play acoustic blues you gotta listen to a lot of it before you start to get the feel of it and I I always laughed when I was playing with another guy who was uh, getting back into it also. I said, you know, I played country music for so long that when I'm playing blues, it comes out sounding like country. And that's not how it works. You just got to listen and listen and listen. 
So you get that vibe. And again, you know, I don't believe in having somebody else teach me. I've tried a couple of teachers and it, it's better for me to learn on my own, listen to something and then try to figure it out. The musicianship part of it is always something to behold. And even the music that I don't necessarily have uh, an interest in listening to, I can still have an appreciation for. And I think that's a valuable point. Some of these guys that play guitar and dance around the stage while they're doing it, I find to be absolutely amazing. Quite frankly, I wonder how the hell they manage to play the guitar as well as they do when they're jumping jumping around and carrying on and uh, so forth. I can't do that. I got to sit in a chair and I'm also old. So shut up, skinny. <laughs> well, I mean, I like to sit in a chair and do shit too. It's not like, you know, whatever I'm doing, I'd rather sit in a chair. I was going to ask you, again, I listened to your music. I was really interested to hear kind of your thoughts on the wreck of the old 97. Now, are you, is that talking about that Danville crash in 1903? Uh, yes, I did a little research. And I always found that interesting about certain songs, the, the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which I don't know if you're familiar with. I absolutely am. You know what? I learned to play it, and then I memorized all 462 verses of it. Yeah, it's a crazy song. I mean, it's so long. But, you know, those kind of songs, like Josh and I really have a connection to those, like these train songs, these journey songs. You know, life is kind of a journey. Life is a travel, and it's transient. Like, it, you could be in one place, which you've – so eloquently describe your life in music and then it, it goes to another and even taking like this 15 year hiatus from it all reminds me that this storytelling part of it is really adds fuel to the music experience too. I was reminded after listening to this song a couple times about some Grateful Dead songs. One would be The Monkey and the Engineer, which if you haven't heard it, I highly suggest it. I, it's a song I think that you would enjoy. Me and My Uncle, these kind of country bluesy songs that tell a story. I mean, Me and My Uncle tells a story basically about robbery and, you know, a heist on the road and it's dusty and dirty out and there's double crossing and people get shot. And I was reminded of that, the storytelling aspect of the experience from that wreck of the old 97. And I just wanted to hear what, what draws you to that song and those type of stories. I learned that song. It was one of the first songs I learned to play on the guitar. Now, I did not learn to play it the way I do now, the verse and cowboy chords, and that was it. I subsequently came back to it two, three years ago. The melody is compelling with that. And it's also easy to play. I, I like the story and it's a classic country folk song. Yes, it's a tragic story and it finishes with a moral. Ladies, love your husband because he may leave you and never come back. That's a compelling point to make. And, you know, without getting too heavy or maudlin about it, that's what the song is about. It can be played light. It can be played heavy. It can be played kind of bluesy. Basically, it's a story song. Well, they gave
Now it's a mighty rough road When the birds can over the line On a three-mile grade Was on that grade Laws was air bridge You can hear one of the trees He was going down the mountain A mile an hour They found him in the wreckers, and on the throttle he was falling into death by the steam. Megan and Amy, take note. <laughs> no doubt. I don't like this. <laughs> Heard that before. Our listeners are always going to be guitar freaks. Some people are more technical than others. I'm not one of those people, but I do like to hear about it. So you don't have to tell us every guitar that you have in your collection, but I'd like to hear what are your personal favorite guitars? What do you have in your collection? You know, one that you are drawn to and maybe one that you're not. I always like to go to the negative, Ask Josh. Uh, So, you know, just tell us a little bit about that because I think that's really interesting for our listeners. Well, let me uh, start right off by saying I do not have an electric guitar. I have acoustic guitars that can be plugged in to an amplifier where you can do all the reverb and chorus and all the stuff that an amplifier does. But I don't like the way electric guitars play, especially after having played acoustic guitars for so many years. The action is totally different. The feel of them is different. And quite frankly, there are too goddamn many controls on it that you got to adjust. Probably my go-to guitar, I have two Martin guitars. I have a, an OM28, which is my my absolute love six-string, and I have a Martin D1228, which is a 12-string, which interestingly, my mother gave me when I was 40. So that was 30-some plus years ago. The reason that she gave it to me was because when I got back from the Navy and got settled into my life, married and having kids and stuff, I said to her, I left my guitar that I had built in the Philippines at your house when I got married and moved out for storage. I said, do you recall seeing it? Oh, yeah. She said, I threw it out. It was cracked. (laughs) I said, oh. Okay. Well, she felt guilty about that. And uh, maybe 10 years later, without knowing anything about guitars, she walked into a local music store and said, get me a 12-string guitar. And they, of course, saw her coming and got her a very expensive Martin, which I love. And um, I had to have a new top put on it about two years ago. And that was the 12-string in 18 strings. And then I have a travel guitar, a Taylor GS Mini, which... I carry with me when I go places. I have a bunch of others that I won't get into. And then, of course, I have the classical guitar that Anne gave me 54 years ago with nylon strings on it, and I still play that. And then, of course, I have a a steel Dobro. It weighs about 462 pounds. It sounds like somebody banging on a trash can, but I love it. It's played horizontally like a lap steel, but unlike a lap steel, it only has one neck instead of strings. And you play it with a slide called a steel, and it's blues and bluegrass. I always think about the line from the Ballad of Curtis Lowe, I got your drinking money, tune up your dobro. It's fun, and I'm just learning how to play it. You can't hold it like a guitar. The action doesn't permit that. Plus the fact that it's got a neck 
that's uh, built like a two by four. So anyway, I, I do have more than I should. And well, maybe I don't. It's like me with hats. <laughs> I have a coffee cup that says you can never have too many guitars. I think that it's really cool that you're this far along in your musical career and you're still exploring new things, trying new formats. And I think that that kind of goes to the heart of why we love music, that there's always something new to listen to or to explore or to try out. Your love of music and your love of history, interestingly, are, are the two things that I got. I wish I had gotten maybe some of your musical talent. Uh, my brother John has, has your workmanship and craftsmanship skills. I like to drink and talk about history. So, you know, we all got something. It's all pretty evenly balanced out, right? Skinny, you got anything else left before we uh, wrap this show up, my friend? No, I don't. I just want to extend so much gratitude to you, Bill, for coming on here and talking to us. It really provides, I think, this deep understanding of who we are as people and why we chose to do this podcast to talk about the live music experience and then also to kind of talk about where we come from and motivates and moves us towards that delight. And uh, I'm just so happy that you came on and it's always good to see you. That's for sure. Thank you, Christian. It's nice to be seen. And I just want you to remember one thing as you go through life. There are no passengers on a sailboat. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So if you're out there and you haven't listened to episode three yet, Bill is referring to the time where I got on the sailboat and sat in the back and grabbed a beer from the galley and uh, decided that that was going to be my day. But apparently I am not a sailor <laughs> because there's work to be done and it fucking sucks. <laughs> It's nice when you get out there and you start rolling. For those hardcore Stummy Down fans on episode three, Garden State of Mind, Skinny tells a great story about his first time on a sailboat. It was not quite what about Bob-ish. Well, I don't recall having to tie him to the mast. He certainly had an experience to remember. You know, it's funny, Pop, and I don't know if you remember this, but one of the first concerts that I ever went to, we went up to Giant Stadium to see Paul McCartney on the Tripping the Live Fantastic Tour in July, I think, of 1990. And I don't remember much from that concert except for the crazy pyrotechnics and fireworks that they were lighting off during Live and Let Die. You know, I'm 13 years old. I'm at Giant Stadium with 80,000 people seeing one of the Beatles. And I'm not sure if you remember that particular concert, but that was a pretty memorable experience. The enormity of going to a stadium concert like that, seeing a Beatle. I'm glad that you have a fond memory of that. I don't remember it at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. A heartfelt thank you, Pop, for joining us today. This has been so cool. I've learned so much about you just in this conversation that we've had and to have this thing that we share, even though we might not enjoy the same music, the fact that we have this connection through music is obviously something that is super important to me. And I just love it so much. So I, I thank you so much for being with us. It's really cool. And I'm honored. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm honored to have been on your uh, worldwide podcast. And you know, who knows, uh, maybe it'll get you a sponsor. Maybe it will. And you know what, as Skinny and I say, 
If it doesn't, who gives a shit? Well, wait a minute. Now, I do want to throw out to you, Josh, actually us helping out. So in this vein of sponsorship, as we wrap up here today with the great conversation is uh, I want to throw a shout out to Josh Kaplan from Josh's Hot Dogs in Northbrook, Illinois. So if you live in Northbrook or in the Chicago area, please go visit Josh's Hot Dogs. He has sent us, which I thought we're going to be here today. The guy's been beautiful. Just let me tell you. He sent us these cool Josh's hot dog shirts. And obviously my name's not Josh, but yours is. So once it gets here, it'll be maybe like a late New Year's or early Christmas or late Christmas. One of those two. But want to give a shout out to him for sending us those shirts. And he's a subscriber to the podcast. And we always want to help out those that listen to us and push that forward too. So thanks, Josh and Josh. In the same vein, thank you, Skinny. I'm very excited to get that shirt, and I will wear it proudly. The Josh's logo, it, it says Josh's across the front with the Fishman Donuts, so it's right in my wheelhouse. I will also give a shout-out to Vinyl Disorder and Strange Design Company. Strange Design put together the design for the Stub Me Down stickers that are going to be coming out, and Vinyl Disorder printed them. So always happy to keep repping the community, and the lot by Promise Loop helps to bring us all together. So it's really cool that we can do this, and we're always happy to have those partnerships. So once again, I want to say thanks to my dad, Bill, for joining us today. Really cool conversation. So happy that we had this opportunity. Skinny, thanks for entertaining my Jones to get uh, my podcast on here. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can check us out on social media. We are on Twitter at stub underscore me underscore down. And we are also on Instagram at the same address, stub underscore me underscore down. And we will see you the next time you need to get out of your shitty seats and down to the path. See you guys. See you, Bill. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad.